Hello, you're listening to Let's Talk Fitness, the bilingual English-French podcast by Stillness Fitness. I'm Sebastian, your host for this episode. So hi, dear listeners. Today, my guest is Mr. Henry Ho with um, nostopath and personal trainer at First Space Canary Wolf Branch and also in Eastington. So, Mr. Henry, can you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, thanks, Seb, for uh, inviting me on. Very uh, honoured to, no uh, to be invited on and to, to have a chat. I think um, discussion is certainly my favourite way to to learn and bounce ideas around. So um, just recording them is a really, really great start. Um, so, so yeah, my name is Henry. Um, I'm a personal trainer, an osteopath, uh, and a fitness educator as well. Um, so I've um, been working at Third Space for, I think it'll be seven years in July, um, whether or not we're including the lockdown period as well. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, as I say, I wear three hats, really. Um, so I'm kind of work underneath Josh, who's the head of education and, and I deliver education at Canary Wharf in Islington um, and then kind of rehabilitation topics across the group as well. I'm an osteopath under Third Space Sports Medicine that kind of is just at Islington at the moment uh, and I'm a personal trainer at both sites, Islington and Canary Wharf uh, as well. Okay, so sounds you're pretty busy as a man, being on two sides at the same time, wearing three hats. How do you manage to have a life on the side of that? <laughs> um, I think anyone, as anyone knows in London, um, and, I, and I know it's not the only city that's that's kind of bustling, but certainly in London, most people struggle to keep that balance, don't they, between um, having, yeah. a, having a life <laughs> and, and work as well. Um you know, my, my work is my passion. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky really that I don't struggle for motivation there. Um, and, um, it's a pretty social job with lots of interaction. Um, but, uh, no, keeping the balance is all just about knowing your, your own morals and values really. Um, what's the earliest you're happy to start work? What's the latest you're willing to finish work? Are there some days of the week that you finish earlier or start later? Um, you know, Uh, kind of organizing your social time as well just being aware of your own limits you know how really how feasible is it to socialize on a friday night for me it's not particularly feasible um and yeah just making sure i kind of really balance my activities outside of work really play golf at the weekend spend time with my girlfriend um all those sorts of things okay okay sounds good um so One question that I have is when and uh, why did you choose to evolve in the fitness industry? Yeah, so um, I've, I've been active my whole life, to be honest with you. Um, you know, very, very kind of driven by being involved in sports and kind of doing things, being a bit of a practical learner. Um, at school, I did just about everything and probably ended up settling on hockey and golf as, as my sports. Um, so I think being active um, and understanding that whatever we do for, for work, you're probably going to be doing your whole life. I wanted to make sure that I was active, really. And, and that's where it yeah. stems from. 
Um, I, I was initially going to go straight into university um, to, just to study sports science. But at that time, there was, a, oh, I mean, at my school must have been 40 boys probably all going to do the same thing. Um, oh, and yeah, yeah, it was a really, really big state school, kind of 2,000 um, 2, pupils. Yeah. And um, none of us really knew what sports science was. Um, and uh, none of us really knew what kind of career prospects were going to be there afterwards. And um, at the time, sort of in my last year at, at Sixth Form College, um, I, I was just working on reception in a gym. Okay. So, so then kind of saw that, you know, you could be involved in training um and, tr- and and exercise without going to university so i just took the decision to delay it really and just did my pt qualifications and, and got stuck in and was was incredibly fortunate really that my first job um at imperial college i've got a gym in south kensington um was incredibly busy and i, I had exposure in strength and conditioning and they funded me to do a lot of the UKCA courses um, but also in commercial fitness as, as well. So um, that's kind of how I got into it, I guess. Okay. And so <clears throat> at the time when you were going through um, strength and conditioning, personal training and all these things, did you already know that you wanted to have this kind of uh, approach with your work or it came later? Um, you mean in reference to the kind of pain and injury side of things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, people always laugh at me when I say it, but um, I started just to find that people in pain tended to gravitate towards me as a personal trainer. Um, okay. And, and obviously, you know, the, the way that a lot of personal trainers learn is by the kind of the questions that their clients and the people they work with are asking them. Yeah. So the, the sorts of education that I was um, seeking outside of the gym um, was driven by my clients and my clients seemed to be that everyone was getting injured for one reason or another or coming to me with injuries <laughs> not caused by me. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's where it started really was that um, the first sort of courses I went on were the pool check courses. They were very sort of popular in the kind of mid to late 2000s. Um, and, and I, I kind of did the entry level one of that exercise coach. And that was taught by an osteopath called Matt Walden, um, who's an incredibly knowledgeable guy and really philosophical guy. And I kind of looked at his knowledge and decided that I'd like a bit of that, really. And, and that's what led me to um, study osteopathy. OK, so now at, um, why exactly did you... Tell yourself. So, although you mentioned that people were gravitating towards you, why did you make the decision that you wanted to specialize into rehabilitation, into pain and injuries? Yeah, good question. Um, I guess it's different for a lot of people. Um, I'd be interested to hear, you know, why, because I know that's a bit of an interest for you as well. But um, I think, I think that um, essentially. I started to see that exercise can help people manage with their not only musculoskeletal conditions, but other systemic conditions as well. Um, and I felt like kind of the, um, the satisfaction and the kind of appreciation on the client side was, was a lot more genuine than helping people sort of with their aesthetic um, 
ambitions as it were and and by no means am I saying that you shouldn't go down that route or people are unappreciative if you help them with with body composition mm-hmm. goals but at that time I found that a lot more satisfying and I I also had this kind of um growing curiosity for for why it is that people break you know why do people get sick and um I, I, it was fairly obvious to me at quite a young age that it wasn't as simple as you know postural things for example and that really um you know the human organism is a bit of an ecosystem and it's a number of um different i don't know subsystems that rely on each other to tolerate stress and, and maintain health so i guess there were it was just a field that was going to be more stimulating for me, really. Okay. okay, okay. So um, you mentioned body transformation. Um, nowadays, I notice that more and more people are being driven by uh, changing their aesthetics, changing um, how they look. So what do you think about um, the position that bodybuilding has into the fitness industry. So what I mean by that is um, if you look, well, if you ask someone who's never been involved into the fitness, um, what fitness look like, chances are this person will tell you, um, will show you a picture of Ulysses or, <laughs> um, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the 80s. So there's a um, there's a big emphasis put on physique, aesthetic, and s- some really important um, parts of fitness are being neglected. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, if 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 people want that, I don't really mind if they want that. Um, I don't think it's a problem if if that is kind of genuinely the goal is just to change the way that people look. Um, yeah. You know, we live in a society now that is just so driven by appearance. Um, you know, if you look at Instagram, for example, the most successful people on there are usually the ones flashing a bit of skin or who are more attractive and, and what have you. Yeah. Um, so it's really driven by that. Um And, and, you know, I'm sure you and I, we both follow people who are on Instagram who really offer no real value to us whatsoever, but we still follow them because it's in our culture, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It is what it is. But I I think that um, nine times out of 10, people don't actually want to look better. What they want is the the result of, well, they think that the way they look is the problem blocking Mm -hmm. them from what they want yeah uh, and that might be that they want a partner they don't have a partner for example um but wanting a partner is not the same thing as wanting to look good um you know do we really want the partner that judges us purely by how we look probably not um you know do do we want to look good or do we actually just want to be healthy and address some of the sort of risk factors that that lie in our hereditary medical history for example um yeah. so i don't mind it at all um i think that you know it brings a lot of people into the gym and makes people take control of their health and become a little bit more empowered um i do think that a lot of people who come into fitness in that way end up acknowledging that 
that isn't what they want and that's a good thing as well yep. um but i i do think there is an unhealthy behavior that that kind of comes about from aesthetic training and that is this intense comparison of yourself against other people and you know you'll you'll know as uh, as as an experienced um and uh you know, thoughtful mm-hmm. trainer that there are just so many factors that influence how one person looks compared to another. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's, it's naive really to get into this, um, cycle of comparison and it's unfair as well. True. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Okay. Um, now we've, with the knowledge that you have right now, If you were able to go back, let's say, 15 years uh, down the line and meet so young Henry, <laughs> what's, what's one advice that you would like to give him? Oh, it's a difficult one. <laughs> it's a really difficult one because there's nothing, there's no like one thing that I think I would tell myself. I think, um, you know, it's... it's you know, we all, especially at the moment during lockdown, we're all kind of reflecting quite a lot. And I think yeah. it's, it's, it's quite important just to acknowledge that it's okay to reflect and maybe it's okay to um, think that you might have done things differently, but I don't think we should dwell on some of the decisions we've made uh, or, or regret them. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I guess the first thing I would tell myself is kind of that it's, it's okay to pursue the things that you want rather than the things that you you think you should do um yeah. you know i i i did that um because i didn't feel comfortable going to university at that time and i ended up mm-hmm. um getting much more out of my university experience at a later date you know um but that was a really really big decision for an 18 year old to be honest with you because it was totally against what what my peers were doing and even my family wanted me to do yeah um And then I guess the other thing I would tell myself is just to focus a little bit more on my own goal setting. Um, so I think fitness professionals, especially, you know, we spend all day trying to help other people. Um, and then there are components of our industry because we are only paid for the work that we do that mean we really sort of chase hours and stack up these sessions. And it's, it's very, very easy to blink and a year's just gone by. And, you know, you, you might have a really clear idea of what your three or five year goal is, but, the work that you've done in the last year doesn't really get you That's, to where you want to be. Yeah. Um, so I guess those two things really is firstly, it's okay to, it's okay to just pursue things that you want to pursue. Um, and then the second thing is, I guess, is once you know what you want to pursue is just, just don't, don't sort of float through life. Um, you know, it's, I think we all know that it's, it's important to have experience, but the quality of those experiences is, is perhaps more important than the quantity of them. Yeah. Uh, what, what would you tell yourself as a, as a 15 year old? <laughs> well, when I look at all the things that I've done so far, and especially I would say since, uh, yeah, from a young age, I think one of them would be to, uh, be okay with the fact that things are not going to turn out the way you want them to turn out. Um, yeah, so just really take life as it comes and don't put too much expectation on others, but really be the captain of your own boat. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good chat. <clears throat> Pardon me, I've just erupted into yeah. a coughing fit. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> no problem. You know, I think um, it goes back to one of those ideas about comparison, doesn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> it's very, very easy to get distracted with what other people are doing. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> and also when with that comes doubt, come um, questioning that are unnecessary. I, f I think, because if, <laughs> if you end up comparing yourself to, let's say, Paul, who's the same age as you and who's already got uh, a big mansion, five cars and uh, three business up and running, where uh, when you on your side, you're struggling <clears throat> to um, make ends meet, but you look at things um, a bit deeply and you realize that, hold on, Paul has all his as, but when I spoke with him, he doesn't feel like he's <clears throat> happy. He doesn't feel like he's enjoying life. He's always on the fence. When you on your side, although you're still growing, you're still building your your life and your, uh, I would say, um, your legacy, you're enjoying life and you're in control of your things. So I feel like it's more important to be balanced and enjoy what you're going through instead of having it all but not being able to enjoy anything yeah yeah that's really sound advice you know and it's so easy in retrospect isn't it um you know i yeah. got a lot of guys at canary, <clears throat> canary wharf who are you know like early 20s um, or even mid 20s but they've come straight out of uni and haven't got much life experience and um, you know, there's, they want it, they want it all yesterday and they're always comparing themselves to others, but you know, there's enough people out there. I mean, clients, etc., yeah. that we don't need to compare ourselves to others because people, um, exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And also clients will sense whether you're real or not. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> if you're faking everything, at some point, they will just live. Yeah. Whereas if you take your time and you're just being yourself, you're going to attract people <laughs> are going to gravitate, as you said earlier, around you naturally, and then you're going to be much more happy. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Um, so going back to uh, what you said earlier, you, were, you said that you always been quite active. Um was it anyone in your family who kind of led you to that path or it was just a choice of yours? Um, it's interesting. I, I came from an incredibly sort of encouraging and supportive and, um, you know, really kind of not, we're not from a family at all that set my path for me. I was allowed to do what I wanted and that was encouraged. Okay. Um, but I, I don't really, th I wouldn't say I really had any role models that were incredibly active. Um, <laughs> bizarrely, actually, um, in saying that, my mum's aunt was the first uh, female British gold medalist at a Winter Olympics. Um, yeah, Ooh. crazy. Huh? Yeah, she's a real pioneer <laughs> nice. yeah. in skating and uh, she was Olympic champion and world champion. Um, but but she she Ooh, lived okay. in um, Switzerland, so she, she wasn't a massive influence on me. But it, I just remembered that. Yeah. Um, 
So, mm. so no, I wouldn't say I really had anyone that was doing that, but I, I guess I, I just, I've always been more active and I'm definitely a practical learner as well. So, um, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's interested me. Um, and I, and I like, I, I love so many different types of sports. I don't know if you remember that program, Transworld Sport. It used to be on Channel 4 in the UK. Um, and even when I was, no. it was like a kind of a wrap up of like global sport. And yeah, there'd be some typical things in there, but there'd also be some completely rascal additions as well um, <laughs> okay. from all corners of the globe. And, and I used to be fascinated by that. I used to watch that every Sunday morning. So uh, yeah, I, I would say it probably came from within really. Um, you know, my dad, my mum and dad were active, but not particularly um, passionate about sport, I wouldn't have said. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, now, so what's the best advice that's been <clears throat> given to you in your whole life? Cool, blimey. Um, best advice. <laughs> Again, really, really difficult to pinpoint, to be honest with you. Um, and I feel like I've been in, um, informed by so many people over the years that it's, it would be kind of almost disrespectful um, to leave any of them out. But um, some things that stand out really is um, quite early on in my career, in fact, my first ever job, actually, um, I worked at Imperial College and there were two other PTs there at the time. And in one person, I had a really bad example of how to behave in the fitness industry. Uh, and and in the other person, I had a great example of how to behave. Um, and that person was a guy called Paul Smedhurst, um, who's at Equinox now. Um, and I, he okay. was kind of a real mentor for me through my um, early 20s, to be honest with you. Um, and, and that was really important to me. And I wouldn't say he gave me any one, you know, one liner, for example, but he was just a constant example of, uh, of good advice, to be honest with you. You know, he pursued his learning. He was diligent with his programming. Um, you know, he was very, very amicable around the gym. He did the jobs that he didn't like doing as we all have to do. Um, and of course yeah. he thrived at the things he was good at. So that, that's kind of like a human version of, of good advice is just his behavior um and then two other things really stick out and and that is um it's actually a, a lady Catherine tilbury kt um so she's um now mm -hmm. physio at, at canary wharf and she said to me at quite an early part of my fitness career that everyone can add value and no one knows everything and i think you know that's a really humble viewpoint um and and yeah. it's a way of kind of you know giving yourself confidence that if you go into an environment that maybe you are less experienced in, that you can add value just because mm -hmm. you are unique and your own viewpoint. Um, but also kind of a yeah. reminder to, to respect other people because it doesn't matter how influential you think you are, you, there's no way you know everything. Um, so, so that, True. that's definitely a big one. And then, <clears throat> uh, the other one would probably be from, Andy Nicoletos, who's bizarrely again works at Third Space now, but um, both those, both both uh, Andy and KT haven't done for very long. Um, and um, he's an osteopath, he's a sports medicine practitioner, uh, an all-round kind of knowledge bomb with arms and legs attached. To be honest with you, um, and I, um, <laughs> it was at a point where I was really struggling with my degree. Um, for those that don't know, the osteopathic degree is really really tough. It's four years, very very full time. You have a combination of clinical um, hours as, as well as 
very, very theory-based assessments, assignments, and then the practical stuff on top of it. And I was really, really struggling because I was very, very aware that often some of the things that are perpetuated in academia are quite dogmatic and archaic. Um, and, and I was far more interested in the new stuff. And he kind of, uh, I, I was observing him down at Pure Sports Medicine. And um, he just said to me, look, just, you need to stop being so stressed and just make a decision at this point. Like, do you want to be a good graduate or do you want to be a good clinician? Uh, as in at the, on the completion of, of your degree. And I think that's, yeah. that's pretty good advice for anyone really, isn't it? Because it's like, do you, do you want to tick the boxes, jump through the hoops and, and kind of play the game? Or do you want to kind of sink your teeth into the more challenging concepts and questions that um, are out there? And do you want to be more useful to people? Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that was really, really important for me, to be honest with you, that, that kind of such an experienced clinician just kind of said to me, look, mm. you know, by all means learn, but just try and try and understand what means more to you. Do you want to kind of help people more so literally on the day that you graduate or do you want A stars? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I kind of swallowed my, I did some, I did somewhere in between, to be honest with you. I did well in some things that really, really <laughs> interested me like psychology and other things I just, just plodded yeah. through like pathology and, and, and what have you. Um, so those, those, I guess, are some some things that, that stick out, and obviously the, um, the ongoing support of my my friends and colleagues as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, really important <clears throat> to have a supporting sounded. Um, okay. What's one advice that you would give to someone willing to start a career in the fitness industry? Oh. Again, like <laughs> I'm not very good at sort of uh, hedging my bets on one thing, so I'm going to give you two. Um, I think yeah. first and foremost would be to kind of study a degree. Um, I have studied with people who are in their 50s. Um, I've studied with people who are teenagers, studied with people of any single age, and some people full-time, some people part-time. Um, and, I, and I think there's a real kind of narrative in the, in the fitness industry of, of sort of formal study being quite sort of uh, a waste of time and that it won't change their career or their, their prospects and things like that. But I think that's rubbish, to be honest with you. Um, it's very mm -hmm. kind of interesting, the psychology behind that. I think that a lot of personal trainers, they like picking up something that's quick rather than investing a lot of time and cash and energy into something. Um, and to be honest with you, yeah. yes, there is a lot of archaic information in academia, but, you know, you've studied, you know, full well that actually you can shape a lot of your degree. You can shape a lot of your degree yeah, and you true. can choose there's, there's topics yeah. that you do literature reviews on and um, the, the research yeah. projects, etc. And And they give you, you know, a unique opportunity to really focus on your development for a long time. Um, you know, yeah. I think being able to study full time and get a loan for it, even if that's a bank loan and not a student finance loan, because they all have to be repaid. Um, that, that's a privilege yeah. that some people just don't have. Um, so I think if you do have that privilege, then you really should, um, embark upon it. Um, and then the, the kind of the, the second okay. piece of advice really would be to, um, just get really, really comfortable and understand your own biases. Um, so for me, I think that, you know, if you don't know your own biases, then they'll, they'll only lead to your biggest mistakes. Um, you know, 
we definitely all have our own favorite flavor <laughs> various fitness things yep. and fitness <laughs> <Sure>. styles um, <laughs> and lots of different things can work and can help people but if you're so closed off to one line of thinking um, then you're never gonna see that that one case that doesn't align with with your own thought process and also it'll mean that as science does evolve as it does literally on a day-to-day basis you know when confronted with this new knowledge you're you're not going to be well prepared to absorb it and to critique it um you know there's there's a kind of a behavioral trait called cognitive dissonance um which yep. is a really interesting topic in its own um own right really but essentially you know cognitive dissonance is this idea that um you know some people hold their uh, profession and their beliefs so closely to their self and their own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really, really heavily invest in that. And when new information is put to them that might not be particularly favorable towards their professional identity, because it's just so ingrained into their, their self that, you know, they they have this dissonance with this new information. Um, and it's almost any attack on, um, their professional identity becomes an attack on themselves and they tend not to behave with a particularly uh, <laughs> good mindset. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think know your own biases and, and, and kind of take up the privilege that you have of, of having a formal education. Yeah. Okay. Sounds really um, wise <laughs> advice. <laughs> Okay, so uh, now let's jump onto the main subject. So um, what is it that you wanted to talk to us about today? Um, One of my favorite topics really is uh, kind of the the role of personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches, aka kind of non-healthcare professionals in exercise rehabilitation Mm -hmm. and and recovery. you know, I think there's a little bit of a gray zone, certainly outside of America, um, because we don't have a formal profession there. Obviously, in America, they have this world that's called athletic trainer um, that sits yeah. between physiotherapy or physical therapy uh, and sort of commercial fitness or strength and conditioning. Um, and as a result of that, you have people who maybe are a little bit underwhelmed at the end of their clinical journey. Um, and I, I don't isolate any one discipline for kind of being responsible for that. I think that happens with osteopaths, physiotherapists, even doctors. Um, mm-hmm. So they're underwhelmed with sort of where they've been left, but they can't yet return to full exercise. Um, so you have this real opportunity yeah. for people to, um, sort of, when I say people, I mean personal trainers, strength coaches, to help those people bridge that gap between I guess a, a discharge from a physiotherapist to being able to just do what they want um, so I, th- I think there's a huge scope there and I think for a number of reasons this is potentially a little bit controversial um, I think for a number of reasons actually some personal trainers are, are better positioned than medical professionals to get people into that place now I, I say that with an enormous caveat that that is not every patient and that is not every personal trainer. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what personal trainers do have is 
probably a better understanding of exercise hierarchy, um, probably more time with the person to really kind of help build their confidence and, and sort of um, get that feedback from the patient or client so that we can modify the program. Um, and, and maybe, dare I say it, personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches are more approachable than healthcare professionals. Um, and, and we know that that kind of alliance and relationship from um, coach or practitioner, as it were, to, to client is, is absolutely everything. Um, I think one of the um, one of the problems becomes that and there is a quite a low barrier of entry into the fitness industry um, yeah. and that there are no kind of uh, restrictions on really what you can call yourself. And in fact, this is quite ambiguous at times because most fitness professionals will do whatever they can to not call themselves a personal trainer. Um, yeah, no, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whether or not it's rehab specialist, transformation coach, uh, I don't know what else have we got corrective exercise specialist uh, strength and conditioning coach you know I'm not saying there's a problem with uh, marketing yourself as what you are but um, that mm-hmm. can just mean that there's no one there just making sure that your your level of knowledge is kind of out of the bare minimum um, yeah which is and, that, and that's my kind of passionate field is kind of educating people on exercise rehabilitation topics um and, um, and and trying to elevate the level because whether or not people are comfortable with this idea, um, a lot of people with injury now will bypass medicine altogether um, and, and just decide they need to get stronger. And there are a number of conditions yeah. whereby they may appear to be quite musculoskeletal, but actually they're very sinister medical conditions. Um, and with this in mind, it's quite dangerous for a personal trainer not to be able to screen that person and redirect them into a medical environment if they need it does that make sense yeah yeah totally um okay yeah so what what's um for a, a new newly graduated so whether being from just a certification or from university personal trainer what would be, in your opinion, the, um, the journey that he or she should take if um, they want to work with injuries? Yeah, um, I mean, I think first and foremost, like, it's different if you've got a university degree and if you haven't. Um, so let's say you graduate yeah. with sports science. Um, you know, maybe doing some sort of postgraduate diploma part-time in musculoskeletal rehabilitation, um, exercise rehabilitation, um, anything like that, that might be a good way to go um, for further education because ultimately you're not going to get access to that um, at undergraduate level. Um, I think that really just in this day and age of uh, it being socially acceptable to send someone a message on Instagram and ask them for help with no kind of uh, um, sort of permission. I think you should take advantage of that and you should reach out to people uh, of varying backgrounds and disciplines um, and and try and spend time with them, try and get their opinion on 
what kind of um, uh, the, the real kind of essential pieces of information are that they need to study. Because don't forget, you know, you can learn anatomy in a book. You can learn about sports medicine in a book. Um, you can shadow people in clinic. You can shadow people in the gym. Um, so it doesn't all need to be formal education. It is possible to go outside of that. Um, so I, I would say those two things really is to try and pursue some more uh, formal education if you can. Um, although, again, it just comes back to, you know, treating yourself to a degree um, or, um, <laughs> or or kind of reaching out to people who you respect and admire and, and look up to. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't want to perpetuate a message that people with a degree are superior to those without because that's just not the case. And some of the most um, some of the best thinkers in the fitness industry have, have never studied. And, and of course, they can help people. Um, but those people yeah. are fewer and far between. Um, and I think that one aspect that is common in just about every degree um, that is massively neglected is it does make you a much more critical thinker and it does mm -hmm. educate you on how to appreciate the different um, hierarchy of research. And that's really important because if you don't know the hierarchy of research and you go and seek research, then it's very difficult to have any idea about whether or not that research is of high quality or low quality or, you know, the demographic is relevant to who you work with. Um, so, yeah, I'm, it's perfectly possible to have a fantastic career and, and to help people, but it's great for your development um, to, to do that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, if people say to me, what's the first thing I can do is I just say buy, buy an anatomy book because you really need to make your knowledge of movement more 3D first. So start with anatomy, start with biomechanics, um, and, and, and then you can start probably joining in some more CPD and understanding it better. Okay. Um, would you, would you mention earlier the, the position of athlete, athletic <clears throat> trainer in the United mm. States? So, um, do you see something like that happening anytime soon in the UK or you don't really see how it can happen? Um, well, Interestingly, I think it has tried to happen, as it were. Um, I think, okay. I, I believe, my understanding is that that is what sports rehabilitation was supposed to be. So these guys who come, come out, okay. guys and girls who come out of university um, with the title of sports rehabilitator. Um, mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, that hasn't really um, taken off. And I, you know, I just don't know culturally whether or not that will happen because now we do have people who are dual skilled. I think you're more likely to get someone who studied um, physiotherapy um, has, and then has done a master's in strength and conditioning to, to fill that void. Um, a, a more interesting question, or not, not that your question was bad, but maybe a question that has a, mm -hmm. a more sort of optimistic answer is our health insurance companies going to begin covering exercise rehabilitation? That that uh, intrigues me much more, to be honest with you, um, okay. because you know we see we just see so many injuries that are insufficiently rehabbed. Um, yeah, or or their injury is is more complex and 
someone's been given six sessions and um you know the practitioner's tight on time and really this person could do with a few hours really worth consultation to educate them as to their injury um okay acute injuries mm-hmm. and injuries which with a really favorable natural history aren't going to apply there but um some injuries don't don't um kind of sit in that window okay um regarding now um so I'm a newly personal trainer. I've, as you said, so I've done my research. I've shadowed a few, um, experienced trainers. And now I'm, I feel like what I need to really be able to do some rehab on my own is a system that I can apply to assess my client, but also to pick on what's going on with uh, with them do you have anything like that into place or any recommendation yeah i mean um i think that through that journey of shadowing other practitioners um studying anatomy and studying biomechanics i think through that journey you will start to pick up a few things that you like um you know i don't think Um, an assessment necessarily needs to be uh, really, really long. I think it can be quite general. Um, I think you can literally, you know, just match kind of uh, someone's ambitions for themselves with what they can currently do and, and just compare the two things. So if someone says, yeah, I'd love to be able to squat without pain, then have them show you what their squat currently looks like and then just coach them between those two things and coach the components of those things. But again, you're going to just through biomechanics, you're going to begin to learn more about that kind of pattern. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. In terms of thing, if I just tell you the sorts of education that I have pursued myself, um, is I really like the, uh, Gary Gray stuff, Gray Institute. Um, so I, I did the okay. online CAFs accreditation. I found that really, really useful. Um, one thing I don't think, um, um, sort of biomechanics education typically does very well on is understanding one joint's dependence on its adjacent joint. And I think Gary Gray and his team and um, all, all his kind of uh, practitioners, they do a fantastic job of understanding why the shoulder needs the, the upper thoracic spine so much or, you know, what the real kind of intimate relationship is with the hip and the pelvis and, and the lumbar spine. Um, so I, I think it, that, that would be a really, really good place to start, but I will warn anyone now that you need to be very, very good with online learning, um, because it is like 40 odd hours worth of online videos. Uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, but, but equally you could, you could do that course and then you could go and find someone who is using it and see what the kind of applications of it are. So I think that's very good. Um, obviously at third space, um, we, teach people fms um kind of heavily criticized um in in the kind of the domain as it were but let's not forget that they're probably the only people who have designed a testing methodology that can be researched because research has to be quite tight and they have set something up like that um i think that 
my um, if I'm being a little bit blunt with a lot of the people that criticize FMS is that if you can't understand the way someone moves by watching someone go through an FMS, then I suggest that you improve your coaching, improve your knowledge, because you can get a lot out of it if you want to get out of it. So the way I will use FMS, um, I will, if I know someone's got a significant shoulder injury, then there are some parts of it that I just won't go near and I'll, 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 I'll take over with more orthopedic testing or osteopathic stuff. Um, and, and frankly, if someone's pain was quite high, then a personal trainer should be making sure that that person's seen a clinician first anyway. And then with the other stuff on the FMS, I'll go through it. And then, you know, because one of the complaints with FMS is that it's not real movement. Like we don't move like that. Um, so, and I would agree, but I'll look at someone do an FMS squat and then I'll take them out and I'll coach them through a normal squat, a much more comfortable squat. And that immediately is sort of developing a little bit of understanding in the, in the, the individual that, okay, well, this person has taken me through something that was really uncomfortable and has now shown me that if we take into account me, <laughs> then they can coach me through it. Um, so there's my mini rant on FMS over, but I think it's perfectly, it's perfectly yeah. <laughs> fine to, to, to use. So, so something like that might be useful. As I say, the Gary Gray stuff's really good. Um, you know, anything further than that, I, I would actually say that probably needs to, you need to go and see a musculoskeletal therapist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one thing I really sort of hate is long assessments. Um, and when someone says, yeah, first I do FMS and then I do um, FRC and then, you know, and, it, and then I do 3D <laughs> maps and it all starts to, to rack up. It's like, you know, quantity of data is of absolutely no importance but like quality of data Mm -hmm. is of importance it shows far more expertise if you can learn everything you need to about someone with a 10 minute conversation and three assessments than it does by showing off that your assessment lasts two two or three hours um i'm sure you've seen a lot of that over the years um yeah (laughs) yeah what do you use? Do you use kind of, um, yeah, what do you use? Um, so I use FMS, but then if, so first of all, as you said, I, I have a conversation with the person. And then usually depending on the conversation, I will either go to FMS or go through a joint by joint approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's it. So FMS takes me, uh, anything between yeah, 10 to 15 minutes to do the whole thing. And then my joint by joint approach. Yeah. The same really, but I tend to, um, so when I do my joint by joint approach, I bring it back to a compound movement so I can really see, uh, straight away. Mm-hmm. I can point things out and, uh, I feel like this is something um, really important to be able to take the joint as a single unit to see how it moves on its own. So closed chain and open chain, but then straight away to see how it moves part of a, a body because there's no movements that I know of where you're going to 
actually only use one joint. So to me, it's important to transfer my analysis from the joint by joint approach to either hip hinge or a squat or a quadruped locomotion so I can see straight away um, how things are moving together and whether or not I need to uh, uh, refer or how I can, how I should um, start my planning. My programming. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I think as well, it, it can catch you out both ways, can't it? Because you can think that there might yeah. be a problem with someone's knee. Um, and actually, it isn't until you go in and, and, and assess that area that you see, okay, well, actually, the knee's perfectly fine. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe I need to pursue this further and have a look at the ankle and foot and ankle complex. Or maybe I need to look on the opposite yeah. side, um, you know, at, yeah. at the hips and see 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 what's happening. And yeah, I, I think um, I think that's the that's the right thing to do. Really, is look general, then specific, and then take it back, uh, kind of generally from yeah. that. Um, just to quickly add, because I know I didn't really explain the whole Gary Gray thing very well, but um, you know we could talk for hours on it. All, all I will say, just for people who <laughs> kind of just want a, a vague idea, is that it, it essentially yeah. asks the question: um, What does the joint need to do? Um, what relationship does it have with its adjacent joints? And then what does that all look like when we start moving in sagittal, frontal and transverse planes? Um, a lot of people sort of criticize um, organizing movement like that. Um, but I, I don't think there's any problem really providing you remember what you've kind of hinted at, which is that there's a person at the end of it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And also I feel like um as a practitioner we need to be comfortable with the tools that we're using so if uh this has been working for you for ages and you still get result out of it i mean there's no reason for you to change uh if on the other hand you're not comfortable with it and you feel like there's uh potentially uh, something where you're not sure about, but uh, you don't know who to ask for help or anything. This is definitely not something that you should be using. Mm. You should probably look at other areas where you're more comfortable to give the person which is in front of your result. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think a lot of people um, need to remember that you don't have to find anything. It's okay to do an assessment and maybe not particularly find much. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this kind of leads into um, to expanding that original topic, um, Seb, which is, you know, uh, if, if personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches that don't exist in a multidisciplinary team, if they're going to start getting people in who uh, have musculoskeletal conditions, then not only are they going to need to familiarize themselves with concerning symptoms um but they're also going to have to familiarize themselves with the, the much harder question you know not does this person's knee go into valgus when they run but the much harder question of why why do people break you know why do people break yeah. and um you know for me people need to become far 
less kind of um, egotistical with what they can do in a gym and what they can assess and what they can find and far more open-minded that strength and conditioning and the postural structural biomechanical model is just one part of potentially quite a complicated interplay between systems. Um, yep. You know, all those kind of structural things are really, really important but they don't carry the same level of importance in every single person. So just because changing someone's running gait has helped one person with their knee pain doesn't mean it's going to be just as impactful on the next person. Conversely, just because moderating someone's training load hasn't worked in one population doesn't mean that that's still not the most logical place to start. Um, and definitely load management training errors. You might've heard it referred to as that's not particularly that well understood in the world of personal training. Um, I think that in medicine, well, no, in sports medicine and in strength and conditioning, that load management is just not really a new idea. But I think in the treatment of the general population and the recreational athlete, uh, and I think certainly in personal training, the load management just isn't really at the forefront of people's minds. The first thing we look for is movement quality and strength and things like that. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenging one. Um, but I, I think it's a great model, the load management model, because what it actually does is it appreciates that the human organism is incredibly adaptable. Um, it appreciates that there are all different shapes and sizes and that there are many different ways to achieve a task. Um, and it also appreciates that different people can maintain and operate at different training efforts. And that actually the, the, the thing that's going to ramp up risk more than anything is probably um, uh, mistakes in training load progression and things like that. Um, and the other reason I like it is it's not all about measuring the training you're doing. Um, so those are the factors that they refer to as kind of, when I say they, I mean, you know, it's a whole world in itself, but Tim Gabbett's the, the kind of main, main um, guy associated with it. Although if you look at his papers, there are a number of authors on it. Um, but, but they also <laughs> kind of um, appreciate that even though you have all this training stimuli, I guess in a sense, you've also got this external load or this recovery stimuli. So sleep, nutrition, social load, um, you know, expectation, travel, all these other things that act on us to inhibit our ability to absorb training load. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the load management model certainly started off in by being tested in a lot of team sports. So Australian rules, football, rugby, cricket. Um, but it's definitely applicable for, for, um, for our population. So I think that um, personal trainers are, are in a quite a good place because they understand the notion of quite sensible week-on-week -week progression. Um, yep. the, the, the problem there lies is that that idea um, makes the assumption that the person does the session in the same state every week. Um, so, you know, let's say if I, I've got a four week training cycle and 
obviously mm-hmm. volume is volume intensity whatever is progressing is progressing in quite a linear fashion mm-hmm. um i have to accept that week two might have actually been the hardest for the client um if i only look at uh, kind of volume progression then i can i can really start to perceive the person in front of me as a little bit of a, a machine a bit of a robot um <laughs> yeah. so what what um uh, the kind of proponents and load management recommend is uh, this idea of of every training session yes you're going to measure characteristics like kilometers traveled if, if it's a running athlete or, or how much weight they've lifted so on and so forth heart rate um, but you're also going to manage um sort of, sort of rpe as well so rate perceived exertion yep. um so what they do um, or let's say it's we've got I've got a client Seb and this person's done their session after the session half an hour afterwards you would mm-hmm. tell them to rate that session zero to ten um, and then you times that score by the length of the session so let's say I trained you and you you sent me a text you're like yeah that was real tough um, that was an eight then I would time if it was an hour long session then I would times eight by 60 um, and then that's mm-hmm. the score for that session. And then that, that you would do that for every single session. So even if they did um, a spin class, for example, you're still going to want that information so, so you can start to collect that. And then what you do, okay. or what's perceived rather, is that um, you, you'd start to stack up these weeks. And then after a month, you've got what you would call a chronic training load. And a chronic training load is yeah. also kind of described as that, that is your kind of capacity. That is your fitness. And then an acute load, yeah. a one week's worth of load, that is um, known as your fatigue. Now, what we know is that mm-hmm. if you take an average uh, over kind of your chronic training load, uh, as in like an average of a week, well, any acute load shouldn't really drift over kind of one and a half times that. That sounds like quite a lot, but when you've trained someone three times a week mm-hmm. every week, and then suddenly they decide, like at the moment that they're going to start running 5k runs it's very easy to actually to tip over that um so it's a really good way to have a a a different measure um of sort of programming and monitoring when we're looking at risk of injury um once you have looked and understood other things as well um so i think that is a concept that personal trainers need to get on to be honest with you, because the world of sports medicine has been using it for, for a long time now. Okay. Um, so is it something that you're, you, you're using with all of your clients from the get-go or you're implementing it at some point during program? How do you, um, how do you use it exactly? Um, well, I don't use it with everyone. The, um, the kind of VRP scale okay. uh, for, for me, I'm going to be using it with people who I think are at higher risk of injury. Um, so, you know, if I've got someone who's a mar- training for a marathon, um, if I've got someone who I train twice a week and they're in group exercise three times a week. Um, so yeah, it doesn't really go for everyone. It, it's going to work on people who either, either, you know, you're concerned that they are at higher risk or, you train them very, very frequently and you can control their training or uh, you keep having these kind of um, kind of uh, speed bumps along their fitness journey. 
Um, and it, it doesn't take a lot of uh, planning, to be honest with you. It's just another another number that you punch into the program that you, you've already written anyway. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting, actually, if, if you sort of delve into the research because they kind of... Um, the, the, the sort of the message they say is it's not actually training hard that is the issue because actually sometimes training harder might be the right thing to do um mm-hmm. and that actually you can prioritize recovery too much uh, at times and that then reduces your chronic training load which makes your acute training load a problem when it does rise so it's very very interesting very very interesting yeah sounds like it's Okay. Um, so now, if so, as a recreational lifter, so let's say that I'm training four times a week with, so I have, I'm following a, a split where, uh, I'm covering my full body, uh, each week. And so I'm having my progressive overloads, my, uh, everything is on point training wise. What are your advice to maximize um, recovery? Maximize recovery. Um, so yeah. it's really funny. Um, I think recovery is really, really important. We uh, used to have a trainer at third space called George Tui. He's at Equinox now. And he always used to yeah. say, oh, I'm not overtrained. I'm under recovered. Maybe it's come from somewhere else, but uh, he. Yeah, I think it's generous in. Yeah. Um, so, so look, under recovering. Um, for me, I think the, the kind of the cornerstone is going to be sleep. I think that um, yeah. sleep is incredibly important. Um, I think it is incredibly uh misinterpreted as well thanks to the birth of uh, all number of um unreliable gadgets like um well, <laughs> we know them i won't name them um that, that yeah. kind of make this assumption that the stiller you are the deeper in sleep you are um and we kind of know that yeah. that's not it's not quite right not, true. Uh, not for everyone it might well be for some people as with all these pieces of uh, technology a bit like body comp machines for some people they seem to do quite well on them other people uh, less so yeah. um so so we had a great guy um jim brown came and spoke to us at third space so he works at uh, chhp on harley street and he's a sleep physician um and kind of his real key take homes were thinking about your sleep hygiene um so exposure to blue light before bed um you know other things that you might find quite stimulating at night like don't do them um try and start to wind down you can think about short mindfulness meditation so on and so forth but the real well the thing that i took away so much was that um there's there's a huge in, uh, kind of individuality into how much sleep we need it's very hard to kind of hit if someone says six and a half hours and they feel pretty well on it then it's quite hard for us to be critical of that um, equally you know seven and a half hours might not be enough for some people but his, his kind of main advice was to, to get as consistent as you can on your your um, sleep times and your wake times um, and to try your hardest to, to carry that over into the weekend as well. Um, so he described, well, not just him, but he on that day described 
um, this sort of concept of social jet lag. Um, and social jet lag is, you know, you stay out a little bit longer on Friday night or you stay up a little bit later on Friday night, go to bed later, you wake up later on the Saturday morning, that then all happens again. And then by Sunday night, you can't fall asleep when you need to fall asleep to, to get enough sleep so that when you wake up on Monday morning, you're in good shape. Um, so you're in this kind of sleep deprived state at the start of the week. Um, and kind of, we know from various studies that sleep deprivation in, in kind of a, if we're looking at cognitive performance can be as detrimental as alcohol consumption, for example. Um, it's really, really in, interesting how, how kind of our circadian cycles are really, really relevant in, in the way that we make our judgments and, and we perform. Um, you know, we'd never go to work having drunk <laughs> on a Monday morning, <laughs> yet we do exist Not. in a sleep-deprived state. Um, so, so sleep's definitely important. My main bit of advice for people is to, um, you know, try not to, if they can, try not to have any blue light after nine o'clock. Um, try and fall asleep at the same time every night and wake up at the same time every morning. Um, try and make your bedroom your bedroom, uh, aka you know, if you do need to do work in the evening, try and do it in the lounge and then go to go to bed in your bed <laughs> uh, to save it for that. Yeah. So that, those are my kind of key tips for for that. I think um, being very very mindful of your so just going back to recovery. I think being very very mindful of how your neat influences your required calories as well. Um, so I think people yeah. set themselves a calorie goal and they, they might, that might be absolutely fine. Um, but then suddenly they're on their feet all day, they're walking around or the, the tubes shut, for example, and they have to walk an extra 45 minutes and all of a sudden that's going to tip the scales a little bit, um, and, um, potentially have a negative impact if they're not giving their body the, the fuel it needs. And then um, just looking after your mental well-being, really. Um, so I don't think you necessarily need to do dedicated mindfulness meditation. Um, so I think it is great. And I know a lot of people who are really committed to like Headspace or the Calm app. And I think, you know, if it works for you, that's fantastic. But um, other people find other things quite therapeutic maybe low intensity exercise is quite a therapeutic act for you you know it can be quite meditative when you go out for a run good headspace um walking meditation yeah. um playing golf if you're good enough to not find it stressful um so yeah. I, I think those really are the, are the three pillars which is sleep nutrition um and uh, uh kind of i don't want to call it mindfulness but if we just call it kind of you know, relaxing, relaxation. Um, and, and then I think, look, you, we can't, this has been a really interesting, I'm sure you'll um, agree, like observing this whole lockdown period and how people are just posting everything on social media. It's been really, really interesting to learn yeah. what different people's mindsets do to the way that they experience their environment and their situation. Um, that has been quite fascinating, actually, um, because I and, I and I do think that that has an impact on your behaviour, and your behaviour has an impact on your recovery. Definitely, yeah. and something, uh, something 
interesting that I've noticed as well with social media is that uh, so since we are in the lockdown, so let's say mid-March, I've noticed that some people for the first week, 10 days, they sounded pretty angry, pretty frustrated with the situation, trying to control everything. And by the time we got to the third week, these same people were actually feeling, looking happier, mm-hmm. looking more <laughs> rested and somehow trying to advise people on how to handle the situation. And it made me realize that this period as however you want to call it is actually making people reflect on themselves, reflect on uh, the energy that they are putting out, but also make them realize that it's okay to take it easy for a while and not, not to want to control everything. We're all in the same boat. We're all stuck uh, not doing what we used to do. But it's okay to actually live life the way it is and not expect anything for a while. Mm. And, I, and I think um, <laughs> it's a really, really good example of how we can be in life. So, you know, as you yep. referenced, um, a lot of people were so quick to be negative um, and quite dismissive of the potential benefits. Um, and, you know, after a few weeks and they've, they've, uh, they've built up a bit of evidence that it's all okay and that there are other, other things that they can focus on and, you know, all of a sudden their behavior changes quite differently and, and we're so like that, you know, we, we do dismiss things, um, on the first light of kind of learning about them, uh, before we've kind of gained any experience of it. And, um, you know, we've only, you know, in this scenario, we had no choice but to gain experience of it, did we? You know, it was imposed on us. Yeah. Um, but maybe it'll exactly. be kind of a, um, an opportunity or, or something that leaves a mark on people whereby in the future, when new things come about, they'll be a bit, a little bit more open-minded or relaxed or dare I say it, a little bit philosophical about to kind of, does it really matter if, if I try this thing and what if it is X, Y, Z, because I may well learn something from it. Um, so it has been yeah. interesting. And I think as well, um, you know, it's really put into perspective what matters. Um, you know, and, and how much we need, you know, within probably two weeks, I mm-hmm. think absolutely every single person had acknowledged how much money they waste. <laughs> um, and obviously <laughs> quite quickly you realize, okay, well, if I don't need that much money, then that's, that's one stress that I can't, I am actually in control of reducing, you know, just by making coffee at yeah. home and making food at home and, and not, buying that little extra thing there and not going into shops. And I'm not saying we should reduce ourselves into living into some of somewhat of a bit of a sterile, um, life, but you know what I mean? It does change perception. Exactly. Mm. Find a balance. Yeah. Um, 
So now going back to uh, the injuries and my lifters rules. So training pretty uh, consistently. Um, as some niggle uh, with the lower back, which is something quite common. And so I've seen physio, I've seen osteo. The diagnosis is the same. There's no, um, the spine is intact. There's no uh, evidence of any kind of uh, bulging disc or anything like that. How would you advise this person to train around this injury? Um, well, I think um, a lot of people, on, on light of um, kind of being given this reassurance or this information rather from a, a clinician that there's nothing sinister there, there's no real treatment for what you have, you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days. A lot of people become quite negative about that. But for me, that's that's great. I mean, that's reassurance. That's someone telling me that actually that this isn't catastrophic and that it may well be that mm -hmm. um, I have pain when I deadlift. But actually, if I manage myself a little bit better and give my body some things that it wants, um, then it's not going to influence my life. You know, um, the, the guy I mentioned yeah. earlier, Andy Nicoletos, he had a chat with him the other day and he was saying, you know, pain is really losing its adaptive nature for a lot of people. Um, so we're becoming quite hypervigilant that we shouldn't have any pain whatsoever. Whereas actually, you know, our yeah. bodies have damaged the whole time. You know, our, our, um, when we train, we intentionally damage our bodies. <laughs> you know, we, we, send, we exactly. send ourselves into an overloaded state so that that supercompensation can, uh, can happen. So yeah. um, I think I, when I, if I have a patient like the one you've described, I think the first thing is I really try and package it up into this quite um, positive and reassuring thing where we say, well, look, you know, the good news is that, that I'm not worried about you and that, you know, there is no real immediate need or obvious requirement for invasive medical procedure. And that's a really, really positive thing. Um, I think I tell people that there's no reason to not exercise, but that we may well have to modify your exercise um intermittently throughout the year um i think that you know you have to be quite careful that you don't come across as like you're making light of someone's injury because certainly i've done that in the past whereby i've not read the room very well um and it and they've, they've not mm -hmm. they've found that i haven't come across as sympathetic enough so you do have to be quite careful and you can only really get that from learning um Yep. But then from there, really, it's about saying, okay, well, look, um, let's look at our exercise hierarchies because you've, you've explained someone who's, who is a gym goer. So they are, you know, push, pull, squat, yep. bend, lift, hinge, twist, walk, whatever. Um, yep. There you go, a summarized movement all in one. Um, so kind of <laughs> as a trainer, understanding your different hierarchies within that um, and then just, just saying to that person, okay, well, uh, your, your upper body movements are unlikely to become a problem. Um, you know, if we take someone who's flexion related back pain, for example, you might change their starting position or you might not have them sitting down or whatever it is. Um, but actually the good news is that yeah. you're not going to get weaker in your upper body. Um, and then finding where just starting a, a, a sensible place on that kind of exercise continuum, 
um, and, and working out if someone can do it. So, you know, we might say, let's start you off, Seb, in a split squat. And if you say, yeah, that doesn't feel too bad, say, okay, fine, then let's, let's give you a, a, a kettlebell to hold um, and see how that is. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Okay, well, then let's, let's ramp up the difficulty and we'll progress that into a rear foot elevated split squat. And at that point, you might say, oh, blimey, it's a little bit sensitive and I feel really, really unstable. Okay, fine. Well, let's take you back to a split squat and we'll live there for a little bit until we can kind of increase you um, as you go. Um, does that make sense? So I, I kind of just, I just, I just yep. view someone not as an injury and say, okay, what point of this continuum do we need to start you on to, to get you moving forward? Um, and then, Oof. you know, uh, the reality is that some people have injuries for decades um they just become less impactful on their life um so maybe they have a flare-up three times a year but it only lasts two days and it doesn't really rattle them or stop them from um, achieving their other goals in the gym um or or um Mm -hmm. just their day-to-day life but just be mindful not to have that conversation until that person has had some evidence that their life can be less interrupted um, because again it yeah. can kind of come across as a kind of underappreciating how much impact that injury might have in someone's life um, and, and b just a little bit patronizing to, to be honest with you yeah <laughs> okay and um, so last question um, earlier you mentioned that working is your patient so yesterday I was on uh, Instagram and I saw a post from Kevin Carr was where he was saying that uh, we miss coaching, which is my case and I believe is yours mm, as well. Definitely. But uh, <laughs> um, I know that you're doing things on the education side of things as well. So you still have um, something to keep your brain going. But what do you do? Uh, in your days or yeah, in your days right now, which is not work related, but actually gives you um, as much fulfillment or at least some kind of fulfillment in your life. That is a very, very, very good question. <laughs> because I think, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people feel a bit silly that they can't answer that with many things. Um, and, and yeah. I, I don't necessarily think that's a problem. I, I can't give you this long list of things. Um, I would say that physically, um, I've, I've got back into running. Um, I think that people always laugh yeah. at me when I say this, but getting into running as a personal trainer is really hard because you're on your feet all day and, and the recovery is, <laughs> is so long. True. Um, and our, our, yeah. our kind of available time is quite minimal. So I've got into running, which I've really, really liked. Um, not to be a complete softie, but I've loved spending so much time with my girlfriend um, and kind of um, nice, yeah. plan, planning our, the next phase of our life together, which is buying a flat. Well, first it's moving in with her parents and then it's buying a flat. Um, yeah. COVID-19 um, pending. Um, so I've really, really in, in, enjoyed that. Um, I've really, really enjoyed um, kind of being able to... Uh, go down rabbit holes of learning that might not seem immediately relevant 
um, because normally mm-hmm. the amount of time that I have to, to devote to my own self-development is quite minimal. So I've got a number of books that are actually more about sort of, I don't want to call them like self-help books, but they're certainly not in the area that I would necessarily be drawn to. Um, they're more kind of like psychology and, and mindset related. And obviously those things are relevant, but um, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to be able to start coaching people in that fashion. Um, so I've enjoyed that. Yeah. And, and then really, um, um, it's just been nice to absorb um, absorb the whole scenario and absorb what feels like the last 11 years. Uh, I've never had so much downtime. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it's been, it's been nice to do that. You know, I'm not someone who is like mad into music or art or anything like that because I am pretty sporty. You know, if, if I had my way, I'd be on the golf course or I'd be riding my bike or, um, you know, that kind of thing. If I had my way, I tell you what I really miss more than anything okay. yeah. is if I could do one thing tomorrow would be to like go on a city break, like walk around somewhere different, hear a foreign language eat different food, have all this variation. Okay. <laughs> That's what I miss. Um, yeah. 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 How about you? What sort of things have you so, been focusing on? Um, so I'm a really big music lover. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm DJing as well. So I'm practicing my DJing, discovering new songs. Um, I'm also learning to play the mm-hmm. guitar so that's on its own is a full-time job <coughs> and yeah so a bit a bit of cooking uh spending time with my girlfriend watching movies chatting uh, seeing how we are evolved and how uh, the reactions are different from one mm. person to another yeah, that that's it really. We take I'm doing things quite um I won't say lightly, but uh I'm going with the flow a lot. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, uh, actually, is because I've I've had over the few weeks, I've had a couple of like I'm not gonna say like depressed days, but really low, flat days. And um the first time I had it, I said to my girlfriend, I don't know what's wrong with me. And, she made a good point. Like we are completely unprepared for, for this. Um, this. This isn't what we do yeah. at all. And it's, I think it's okay to have those low days. I just think you have to acknowledge them for what they are. And you know, my personal strategy has been doing things that require less concentration and less focus. So putting a podcast on, doing some chores, yep. going for a walk, watching some TV, just embracing it. Um, and then just, just hoping that the next day I can be a bit more constructive. Um, but bless them a lot of people are, are feeling like that consistently um so fingers crossed we'll be out of this mm-hmm. mess sooner or later yeah hopefully hopefully well uh henry it was an absolute pleasure to have you on this episode um i wish you all the best and uh, let's hopefully see you soon Thank you very much. Again, privilege really to be asked uh, to to come on and just waffle with you for, for an hour and a bit. Um, as I say, hopefully we have a, a human interaction there sooner or later. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Okay, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah. You're Bye bye.